Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting live from the podcast New York studios, it's the all-new Dueling Decades, the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome, I am Mark James, and this week I will be representing the first week of April 1970 in this week experience battle in which all of our competitors' selections must fall within one calendar week. Let's meet the other duelers in the decades they will be fighting for. First off, bringing back the 80s, say hello to Man Crush. What's up? What is up? And I'll tell you, it is awesome to be live. And uh, almost every guest over the past year has asked us, why isn't this live on video? Well, now it is. And before I get to my dates, I just want to drop a big shout out to our first ever patron on Patreon. Of course, that is uh, Mr. Eric Fideli. The row. I hope I didn't butcher your name, bro. Uh, but if I did, just let me know how to say it correctly. But uh, thanks a lot, man. That was super cool of you. And hopefully we can get more patrons and then we can kick off the trivia and then we can kick off our launch, that grimy 70s show, which will be a Patreon only thing. But anyway, I am battling today with April 1st through the 7th, 1980. Also joining us on the panel and bum rush in the 90s. Please welcome back to the show, Mike Ranger. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ranger, representing April 1st through 7th of 1990. And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So back behind the bench is the brazen badass from Beantown. All rise for Judge Dave Schultz. Hey, it's been a while. It's been a while, and I always appreciate Mark's uh, nice words when he introduces me. You know, I'm still looking for that bench. I just uh, took a gander here. Don't quite have it, but I will... <laughs> Be looking uh, for you to send me one in the mail. Make believe. Oh, will do. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Listen, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more Dueling Decades. All right, let's go right down to our guest judge, Dave Schultz, for the coin toss. Yeah, you know, I'm not a celebrity. I apologize for this, but <laughs> Man Crush was talking about Patreon, bringing in some money to the show, right? I have brought something tonight that might be worth a literal mint. We uh, should consider auctioning it off for some sort of charity, but you all remember Pogs, don't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. well, I kind of I made my own little Pog here. and Now, Easter just occurred recently. I don't know if you guys celebrate or not, but I like to decorate eggs with my son. And you know those kits... 
that you get, those little cheapo kits you get for a couple bucks, and, and they get the little perforation on the back so you can let your eggs dry in them. Well, I, yeah. I pulled one out, and should I show it to you now? Maybe you guys are familiar with these things. Little taps. Most people just throw them in, in the garbage, right? But not this guy. No. And uh, while we were shooting the breeze before we went live here, I decided to do a little doodling, and I drew a uh, picture of, of Mark, Mark James here. <laughs> but, but wait, something's wrong, right? Something's off? What, what's that on his head? What's that gnarly moss? Well, I decided to give him some really uh, luscious, long, David Lee Roth-style uh, hair there. So uh, gave some caterpillars too for, for the things. eyebrows. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, what can I say? I took a little uh, artistic license with that, I guess. But the double chin's intact. Oh, so there you, go. you left a couple out though. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> but yeah, I think this thing is uh, flip worthy and awesome in many ways. So we have the I'll call this heads, of course, because uh, Mark's face is on it, or my again my interpretation makes sense. And on the back we have some weird. Uh, words that I don't quite understand because I'm a simpleton, but I'm assuming this is the poison that's in the uh, dye that I used to color the eggs that I ate. And it says malodextrin, FDNC yellow, magnesium uh, stirrate. So if you're a scientist, please get back to me and let me know how much longer I have to live. But we'll call that we'll call that tails. That's just the uh, gnarly ingredients there. Excellent. All right, Mike Ranger, you have the honors. Why don't you call it this week? Well, I'm a big fan of tails, so I'm just going to go with that. All right. Let's see what we got. You ready? Ooh. And uh, magnesium stirrate is the winner. So, Mike, tails, you got it. (laughs) All right, Mike. You win the coin toss. You take control of the board, and you get to select our first category. Once again, I'm not prepared for my first selection, so we'll just – here, why don't we just go with music? Oh, all right. Yeah, we're going to go right to that. Uh, Well, uh, gentlemen, due to a complete lack of a better choice, I'm going with the debut album by En Vogue. Born to Sing, hit your local Sam Goody on April 3rd, 1990. The album reached number 21 on the Billboard 200 and number three on Billboard's R&B albums and was nominated for a Grammy. Born to Sing reached platinum status, selling 1.7 million copies in its first two years. The album had four singles, including Lies, You Don't Have to Worry, don't Go, and their debut song, Hold On, all of which hit number one on the R&B charts. Uh, Los Angeles Times writer Dennis Hunt wrote that unlike most female groups, these four R&B singers can really sing and do some passable rapping. Uh, it's not my thing, but perhaps this mix of hip-hop, soul, pop, and New Jack Swing was just what the music industry needed in contrast to the gangster rap uh, sound that was so prevalent in the 1990s. So uh, in vogue, Born to Sing. Wow, excellent. All right, so for my music selection, I went over to the Billboard Hot 100 for the week ending April 4th, 1970, to see what the top songs were for the week. The number one song in the country was the Simon and Garfunkel gargantuan hit, Bridge Over Troubled Water. But I'm not going to talk about that song because it always puts me to sleep. So the number two song in the country would knock Paul and Art out of that top spot the very next week, becoming the hottest single in the world ahead of its album release. And that song was the all-time classic and swan song, Let It Be by the Beatles. But I'm not picking that monumental hit either. My pick is a song from the band Mountain. And in its first week of April 1970, it made its debut on the charts in the number 92 spot for the week. Now, the song eventually reached number 21, becoming the biggest hit for Mountain, who played just their fourth ever show 
at Woodstock less than a year earlier, kind of sandwiched in between Can Heat, The Grateful Dead, and the impending monsoon of rain. From their debut album, titled Climbing, I Give You the Rock and Roll Staple of the 70s, that seems like it was included in every single TV compilation album since. She taught me everything. It's the Mississippi Queen. You know what I mean. It's the song that it's not actually about a riverboat, but about a seductive woman who teaches the singer a thing or two about the ways of love. Mountain guitarist Leslie West explained how Mississippi Queen came together in an interview, and he said, When the drummer, Corky Lang, brought me the idea, it was a one-note dance song. We got real high, we took out a napkin, and I came up with the riff and chords, and then we put the words over it. Lang's recollection of the song was, I was madly in love with the band, so I decided to put a Cripple Creek feel behind it. Later on, I told Levon Helm that I felt bad about ripping them off. He said he didn't see the similarity at all, and we didn't owe him any money. So I give you Mississippi Queen by Mountain, April 1970. All right, Man Crush, what are you bringing for the music round? All right, first, uh, way to go, Mike, on the strategy there. Um because it's going to play into effect, because you're never going to get it, never going <laughs> to oh, get God. it. Oh, uh, all right, so let's go uh, April 1st, 1980. Uh, you know, music releases for the first week of April 1980 were pretty dog shit. As a matter of fact, there was only one album, and I wasn't going to pick it. It was not worth it. So what I brought here, it's a pretty sad story, but it, it turns itself around, and it quickly becomes a great story, all right? So this occurs right as the band really hits their stride. And honestly, now that I say that, they hit their stride right out of the gate. But off the back of their biggest album to date, the band was delivered an awful blow here. On February 19th, 1980, the lead singer of this band that he passed away at the young age of 33, after a long night of partying and drinking, their vocalist, he was left by himself inside of a car and he was found dead several hours later. There's a whole crazy story behind that. There's conspiracy theories. Maybe we'll get into that on uh, the Patreon if we do it, but I won't go through that here. So now you have this band, like fresh off their sixth studio album, which would end up going seven times platinum. So that's nothing to sneeze at. So now at this point, the band's left with like the ultimate dilemma. We made fantastic music. We made a lot of money. Do we just call it quits or do we find a replacement, right? So after speaking to the deceased vocalist's mother, she convinced the band that her son would have wanted them to continue doing what they did best. And in nearly five weeks, the band found their replacement singer and they hired him on April 1st, 1980. And just for a second, think about how insane that is. I've left jobs before and it's taken them over a year to replace my ass. <laughs> this guy, like, it's crazy. These guys, they found their guy in over a month. It's wow. just insane. Then they went right into the studio and recorded their next album in April and May. And they did, of course they dedicated the album to their former frontman. but what's crazier than that, the album was released on July 25th, 1980. And it would go on to, to go, this is insane. 25 times platinum wow. in the United States and become the second highest selling album of all time, of course, behind Thriller, I think the claim is like 50 million worldwide, where I think uh, Thriller had like 66 million worldwide or something. But you got the lead singer dies. They hire a brand new guy in a month. 
They go right into the studio without ever really playing together. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like you go into a job, like somebody gets replaced. It takes months before you're like synchronized, you know? And then they released one of the best albums of all time, arguably. It's the hiring of Brian Johnson as the new frontman for ACDC. I don't think I need to say more about that one. Wow. Fantastic pick, man, Crush. But let's see what our judge Dave Schultz has to say on his ruling for the music round. Okay, let me look at my notes here, gentlemen, because uh, you give me a lot to think about. Uh, 1990 En Vogue with Mike. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't really remember that record. I wasn't really into the scene at the time. But just the fact that it happened in 1990 and I don't remember any of it is uh, not good for you. I'm not going to sing any lyrics <laughs> like Man Crush did to taunt you. You guys can uh, work that out you know, amongst yourselves. Um, let's see here. Mark, I got a question for you. When yeah. you when you were going on there about what you weren't going to pick, you did mention Let It Be by the Beatles. Now, why that wasn't within the time frame? What was going on No, there? It, it actually had been released earlier and debuted on the charts a few weeks earlier. Whereas mm. Mississippi Queen actually debuted on the charts the week I had. I so. prefer when you say Mississippi Queen like you're uh, with flair, like you're singing it. Mississippi Queen! Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Mark sings a lot more live. He's built that puppy out. <laughs> uh, Man Crush here, 1980. You always come with the stories. You always come with, with a deep backstory that impresses me, and i got to give you props for that. But I do have some bad news for you. Uh, you did mention that your job that let you go or you quit or whatever the case may be <laughs> took a year to replace you uh, here on Dueling Decades. If you were to possibly get hit by a bus or a piano fell on your head, they'd probably replace you the next day. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know. I'm ready to jump in at any point. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's why I chose here. But looking at all this, I, I got to say the – because, I mean, ACDC – with the singer Brian Johnson just went on to uh, super mega fame beyond belief. Uh, and that decision proved to be quite fruitful for the band and the history of rock music. Therefore, I'm picking 1980 for the win. We can't say anything negative about Bon Scott. I mean, I didn't. Amazing what they did. You no, know, you I'm want me saying, to? Because like, I didn't even. I didn't bring him up, and I want to, like, the albums they had with him are fantastic. It's two totally different decades. It's kind of like, you know, Sammy and Dave. You got to judge them totally separate. True. It's not a plug-and-play band, though. They just right. They found the right fit and just kept going, and they did what they did best. I know there's there is knocks on them from some people, like, oh, they just do the same shit all the time, but why would you want them to change? Right. You know? All right, Man Crush, you picked up a point in the first round, but more importantly, you take control of the board. What category are we going with next? All right, let's go with let's go with news in round two. Uh play a little strategy here. Hopefully it works out. Um so actually let me see what date I have. So let's go to April seventh of nineteen eighty. I stumbled upon this article here, and I'd like to think that this is a pretty monumental piece of music history here. The title of this article is A Star is Back by Patrick Goldstein. And I'm just going to recap the article a little bit. I'm not going to read through it. But in uh, the late 60s, this guy right here, he owned his own management company, music management company. And while he was trying to pitch one of his clients, which was Jackson Brown, he was like going around town trying to get them a deal. He told the head of Atlantic Records, if you sign them, you'll make money. And in response, that record executive looked at him and said, 
I'm already rich, man. You start a label. You make a lot of money. So in 1971, this dude created Asylum Records, and he made a deal with that same executive at Atlantic to distribute for them. And over the next few years, he signed Joni Mitchell, Glenn Fry, Linda Ronstadt, Tom Watts, John Fogarty, and somehow he swayed Bob Dylan away from CBS, just to name a few. And this guy was also credited with putting together supergroups at the time, like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and the Eagles. So this guy has a track record. So now, seeing that this young executive what he had accomplished over those five years, everybody wanted him to work for them. This is a guy that would have taken a year to replace Dave. Uh, so in 1975, he steps away from Asylum Records and music altogether, and he crossed over into film when it was announced he signed a five-year contract to be the vice president of Warner Brothers Pictures. Unfortunately for him, but good for everyone else, he was fired in 1978 from Warner Brothers. So with his contract lasting for another two years, he was basically forced to sit at home and, in his words, watch the music industry start to deteriorate. But now, after a five-year layoff, this brash young record mogul will return to the fold as the head of the new record label, yet to be named, which will be part of WEA Records Umbrella, which includes Warner Brothers, which he was just fired by, uh, Atlantic Records, and Asylum Records, which he actually started in 1971. That label right there, it would go on to be named after its newly minted head man, David Geffen. Of course, I'm talking about right here, the formation of Geffen Records. Uh, he did end up signing some music veterans in the beginning. He had Donna Summer, Elton John, Debbie, Debbie Harry, uh, Don Henley, and the guy we spoke about last episode, Peter Gabriel. Then, of course, uh, Geffen began his success in the rock arena. He started adding uh, Guns N' Roses, Tesla, uh, Whitesnake, Aerosmith. And then with the label taking off, Geffen creates DGC Records. And under DGC, Geffen goes on to sign Nirvana. So, I mean, this dude in this span is like mega. So we get the return of David Geffen, the creation of his new label, Geffen Records, and just a new movement in the music scene with the signing of Nirvana. I mean, there's other bands too, but I'll use them for right now because it stretches so much. So it's really hard to picture a music landscape without Geffen coming back right here and going into the music business. Like what would that, we would have been listening to disco for another 10 years if this didn't happen. <laughs> so that's why I bring you the return of Geffen Geffen records. Fantastic. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the news round? Well, let me, uh, let me tell you there, Mark. Um, I have an article that covers uh, the injury of Tommy Lee from Motley Crue at an April 6th concert. Uh, the article reads, uh, Rocker suffers concussion as Motley Crue goes to war. Uh, Tommy Lee, a drummer for the flamboyant heavy metal rock group Motley Crue, was hospitalized with a mild concussion suffered when he fell during a concert Saturday in New Haven, Connecticut. Authorities said Lee, 26, was taken to Yale New Haven Hospital after he fell to the floor while swinging down a rope uh, from some scaffolding on the, uh, on the stage. Um, band member uh, Nikki Sticks says that we don't just play rock and roll, we live it. We go on tour and we get broken bones, diseases, the crowd leaves bloody. It's more like going to war. Motley Crue is scheduled to perform tomorrow in Binghamton. Uh, amazing, uh, as, uh, just a few short years later, uh, Pamela Anderson would be swinging from Tommy Lee's dick. <laughs> uh, though uh, no concussions uh, were reported. <laughs> Great, now I can't promote this video on YouTube either. <laughs> I don't know if anybody no notices or like if you know anything about YouTube, but we try to promote our last video. We just did a test run with Andre Gower as a contestant. If you haven't listened to that one, it's fantastic. 
but they kicked that one back to us for uh, shocking content, which like what? And then when I appealed it, they sent it back for gambling. So <laughs> thanks, Mike. Sorry, you're, you're, you're right, though. Tommy Lee's dick is shocking. <laughs> <laughs> Surprised they didn't um, didn't need a bigger boat. Remember when he honked the uh, the boat horn with it? It's <laughs> impressive. All right, guys. So for my news story, let's visit our good friends over at newspapers.com for an article in the Press Democrat out of Santa Rosa, California, April 6, 1970, where the headline reads, LSD-treated potato chips send 27 to hospital. 27 persons who attended a swinging singles party received emergency hospital treatment Sunday while they were on an unwanted hallucinogenic trip apparently caused when they ate potato chips that were seasoned with LSD. Some of them were really climbing the walls, but they were really out of it, said Sheriff's Lieutenant Benny Woodward. Most of the 27 who, th who sought treatment experienced mild symptoms, such as dizziness, but others had full-fledged hallucinogenic trips. One young woman was so stoned she was unable to give her age, deputies said. Deputies believe the chips were the source of the drug because someone who was an informant told them that someone was going around the party whispering, hey, lay off the chips and the corn chips. The chips were confiscated for analysis. So let's fast forward about a year later for the rest of the story, where a yes. March 1971 article reads, makes LSD potato chips, gets six years to life. Donald Damn. John Henry thought it might be fun last April 4th to put some life into a swinging singles party in the South Bay Club by lacing potato chips with LSD. But Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Birch Donahue didn't see it that way. He sentenced the 31-year-old bushy-haired defendant Wednesday to a term of six years to life in prison. Henry was arrested four months after the festive affair turned into a hallucinogenic nightmare for up to 50 guests one of which was a former Playboy Playmate of the Month who was one of the guests who testified in court. She said that she could neither talk nor hear and that everything and everyone appeared grotesquely deformed to her. Now, whether she was talking about her experiences with LSD or her experiences at the Playboy Mansion, that's not clear. So I give you Donald John Henry, winner of the 1970 Lay's Flavor Contest. Oh, good Lord. All right, let's toss it right down to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling on the news round. Okie dokie, smoky. 1980, the uh, return of David Geffen. That is a very interesting story. Impressive. Uh, the Thank roster you. he put together is unmatched, I think, probably by just about anybody or anybody I can think of. Although, uh, I did fail to hear, uh, he did not sign the drummer from Mountain Corky. So, that's just a little <laughs> lame toss back to the last round. If anybody was paying attention, maybe yeah, I was the only gotcha. one, but yeah. So, uh, but That's your job. Hey, uh, but that's, that's pretty impressive stuff. 1990 with Mike, Tommy Lee uh, falls off the rope. They, they don't just play rock and roll. They live it. To me, it sounds more like gym class. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember having to uh, climb that giant rope. Yep. Yeah. I don't think they do that anymore. Oh, really? Probably. No. Okay. Maybe it's Tommy Lee's fault. Who knows? <laughs> they, saw that. they saw that one coming. 
Now, <laughs> I get it. Hey, 1970, <laughs> I find this really weird, Mark, for, for a couple of reasons. For one, I can relate doing a lot of LSD in my heyday. <laughs> um, but, but I don't know, you know, I was born in the late 70s. I'm not really sure uh, how, how chips were manufactured, but if you open chips now, it's all air. So to, to taint enough chips for 27 people to trip their balls off, I, I don't know, you got to buy a lot of bags of chips. Holy macaroni. Well, my other question is, who the hell's going at a party and just dipping your hand in a communal bowl of chips? Well, it's 1970, bro. It's not 2021. <laughs> yeah, there was a key party going on back then. It was no big deal. It's like key, chip, key, chip. But uh, Double dipping. Donald John, Donald John Henry. And he spent six years in prison for this, huh? That's wild. Um, Wait, did you say six years or six years to life? Six years to life. Oh, what did he serve? Do you know? <laughs> I, I do not know. I have not. I was not able he to died find in prison. this fucking guy. He can still be in jail today. He can be listening to the show right now. We don't know. I know you guys are really big in uh, cell block C. <laughs> the penal. The pe- yes. <laughs> the penal league. I, I got I to gotta be honest here. I like all these stories, these news stories. I, if they were in my news feed today, I'd be reading each and every one of them. Very, it'd be so much more interesting than NFTs, which I'm sick of being bombarded with. But um, I'm not going to go with, with girth on this one because, man, Crush, you, you came with the girth. I mean, well, I mean, Mike did too, in essence, right? Talking about Tommy Lee. <laughs> yeah. But I, I was really impressed with the story from 1970. I like the idea of people just tripping their balls off after sharing some chips. And then, uh, <laughs> then even then, taking the guy to court for it. Because if you've ever had a horrific uh, nightmare from LSD, you, you don't want to recount that. You don't want to think about it again. And these guys were in front of Judge Wapner doing that whole thing. So I'm going to give it to uh, Donald John Henry, wherever you are. And, Mac, you win. All right. Now, is that a is that a throwback to your last Songs Gone Wrong episode? Is that why you tipped the, nut, the hat to that? No. No, those were uh, gummies. Oh. <laughs> and that one never made air. So that's uh, Patreon exclusive. <laughs> I'd love to listen. No, you wouldn't. No. <laughs> All right, guys. So I pick up a point. I take control of the board, heading into our final one-point round, and I'm going to throw a wrench right into this game because we're going right to the movies round. All right. So for my movie selection, let's go to the Boston Globe, April 3rd, 1970, where an ad reads, General Cinema Corporation, major studio preview, tonight at 7.25 p.m. New hilarious comedy starring Henry Fonda, James Stewart, and Shirley Jones. Now, a few days later, on the 1st of April, in the Philadelphia Inquirer, they said that the National General was uh, moving up the release date of this film to cash in on all the great publicity that Jimmy Stewart's been getting since he opened on Broadway in Harvey. And as co-star in this upcoming movie, Hank Fonda, or... Henry Fonda, received the same kudos for his West Coast appearance in Our Town. I present to you the Cheyenne Social Club, directed by Singing in the Rain's own Gene Kelly. An aging cowboy finds, to his embarrassment, that the successful business he has inherited from his brother is actually a house of prostitution. The the Cheyenne Social Club, not to be confused with the Buena Vista Social Club or the Billionaire's Boys Club, the Cheyenne Social Club features the only nude scene in a Jimmy Stewart movie, which sadly ends my hopes of a deleted Grace Kelly cuckold scene from Rear Window. So, 
The Social Club stars real-life pals Fonda and Stewart, who actually went to Hollywood together, and they saw each other become huge stars. I guess you could kind of call them the OG Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Stewart agreed to the to do the film, suggesting to the producers that they offer the part of Harley to his good friend Henry Fonda, where the two characters in the movie would highlight the real-life political differences between the two buddies. Uh, the film had its official premiere on June 10th, 1970. It was not well-received by critics initially, but it did find an audience because of repeat viewings on cable. So I give you The Cheyenne Social Club with James Stewart. With full frontal nudity. Full frontal. Can I ask a question here? I usually wait until everybody speaks, but uh, the nude scene. Yeah. What was it, Jimmy Stewart? No, no, it was one of the <laughs> prostitutes. I, I, I'm no, I'm no, I'm no Tommy Lee. You see, I, I <laughs> fall off no rope. You, you, make me a cuckold. Oh God! <laughs> oh, who is that talking? That, that's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, crush. Let's toss it over to you. What do you have for the movies round? All right, so let's go April fifth of 1980. Mark selected the dates for this episode, so as soon as I saw that I had 1980, I actually cringed. Uh, if you guys aren't aware. We post movie releases daily to our Facebook and now to our Instagram. So if you've yet to go there, come over and join the other 85,000 fans that are over there. I swear we share a lot of great content. So if you want to check that out, take a look at the show notes for all the pertinent links for Dueling Decades. We never tell you guys to do that. So I'm telling you to do it now. Go to the show notes. We're not spelling them out for you. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Being that I create these uh, these movie release posts every morning, I'm pretty aware of the movies that are coming out. And in 1980, it was a wasteland in April. We basically didn't get a major studio release in April until April 25th. And prior to me finding this sneak preview on April 5th, which is a Saturday, I was also I was almost gonna go with a fetish thriller about a cheating wife who liked to get assaulted. So let's just, uh, yeah, let's be happy. Actually, uh, Eric uh, Fidelli Thoreau, he probably would have liked that one. So if, if you message me later, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, but as I mentioned, this was a sneak preview. And this is also that movie that came out on April 25th. So this is pretty much the largest release of that month. At the box office, this movie, it did respectable for a gonzo comedy in 1980. Brought in about $7 million worldwide. So it's around $22 million in 2021. Honestly, though, any movie with Bill Murray is worth its weight in gold. It, like, who cares what the box office is? Now, before you jump to conclusions, this is not Caddyshack and it's <laughs> or Stripes, which is actually 1981. That being considered, I would personally say this is his best acting performance from those early years. His best one by far, I think. To get in character for this movie, Bill Murray, he went and spent time with the gent that he was going to portray in the film. So during that time, he was at this guy's ranch in Aspen, Colorado. And apparently they just did crazy shit together. They got super friendly. So friendly and crazy. In fact, they also thought it was a fun idea to find out who's the best Houdini of the two of them. So from there, Bill Murray, he gets strapped in a chair. And this is not in the film. This actually happened while he's trying to get into character. He gets strapped into a chair and thrown into a pool while he's tied in this chair. And he almost drowns before his newfound friend pulls him out of the pool. Bill Murray, he plays his role so well that when he went back to film SNL, which actually it was season five and it was shooting at the same time as the film was, he showed up talking 
he was like talking funny rather like smoking cigarettes out of those long cigarette holders and he wore a pair of dark framed glasses and there was an anonymous snl writer who said and i quote billy was not bill murray he was hunter thompson you couldn't talk to him without it being hunter thompson you know this is funny i wonder if joel murray knew about this from a couple episodes yeah. back i would have loved to ask him about it because his storytelling ability was fantastic but uh, even uh, Bill Murray himself, in a 1993 interview, he said that the uh, the persona was tough to shake, and he says that there's still a piece of Hunter inside of him, which is actually sounds a little weird to say, but I can uh, I can actually see that in his mannerisms and stuff, how he goes about himself. So if you're in the mood for mostly true stories, Peter Boyle playing an insane lawyer, gonzo journalism, whiskey IV drips, scandalous nurses, Super Bowl seven, shooting fax machines, illicit drug use, things you could do on a plane prior to 2001, arms dealing revolutionaries, stolen identities, tricky dick and lost soundtracks. Then the Hunter S. Thompson cult classic where the Buffalo Rome is the movie you're looking for. Awesome. Yeah, great performance by him on that one. Oh, he's dude, he's amazing. It's spot on. Yeah. All right, Mike Ranger, what did you bring for the movies round? Well, Mark, on April 6th, 1990, the Kevin Klein and Tracy Ullman black comedy about love, marriage, deceit, and murder. I love you to death opened in U.S. theaters with a rating of R for profanity and moderate violence. Also has a runtime of 96 minutes. Uh, the film also the film also calls co-stars uh, Keanu Reeves and River Phoenix in their first pairing. Uh, the two would later star in 1991's Gus Van Stant's My Own Private Idaho. My Own Private Idaho. Uh, the film grossed over 16 million against an undisclosed budget. I uh, found a review in the April 9th edition of Rochester, New York's Democrat and Chronicle. Uh, they're getting a lot of uh, play today. Uh, by Jack Garner, uh, who gave the film a two-and-a-half-star review, but does say that Klein and Ullman are marvelous as husband and wife who continue to love each other through some amazing circumstances. Uh, perhaps uh, the most interesting part of this fun but mediocre film is that it's loosely based off of a true story. Uh, in 1983, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, Frances Toto tried to drug and kill her husband, Anthony. Uh, she served four years for attempted murder and was released in 1988. Uh, dueling decades uh, reached out to husband Anthony for comment, who said, well, I'm living here in Allentown and it's hard to keep a good man down. <laughs> <laughs> I love you to death. Fantastic film. That is actually one of the films that we put together just a couple mornings ago. Yeah. I saw yeah. that nearly yeah. came in my pants. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, honestly, it might be Keanu Reeves best acting. I used to think it was uh, Bill and Ted, but I think it, it might be this. That's actually what connected me to put it on that six because there were more than six releases that day, which is always tough because we only put six. So I got to kind of pick the best of the six or at least my favorite of the six. And the reason I picked it was because uh, I saw Keanu Reeves was in it, but I've never seen that. But oh, the way fantastic. You, the way you just made it sound, I, I don't know. All right, let's air. throw it over to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling on the movies round. I'm amazed. I am simply uh, flabbergasted here because I'm a 42-year-old man who's watched countless hours of useless crap, movies, TV shows, you name it, just people on the street, whatever you want. But I mean, I'm, I'm talking probably uh, three quarters of my life just wasting my time in front of a television. And only Mike brought a movie that I've actually seen. So I, I, I mean, well, to be all, you know, in all fairness here, I am waiting for the Cheyenne Social Club director's cut. 
Um, I think it's going to be on HBO Max this summer, so that's going to be a big one for me. And where the Buffalo roam? You know, what I like what Man Crush did was he talked about just about every rad thing Bill Murray did, except for the movie itself. You know what I mean? Playing Houdini. I, I know about the movie. He, very little. It was more like, yeah, he jumped in a pool like Houdini. Oh, yeah, he was smoking the Hunter S. Thompson cigarette thing, and he was in character or whatever. But I, to be honest with you, I haven't seen it. You know, so. Stop what you're doing. Just leave right now and go watch. Adios. It's fine. Take it easy. We'll have Joe fill in. There you go. Joe, you ready? <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Okay, good, good. <laughs> uh, now, I do have a question, though. Maybe someone could refresh my memory here with I Love You to Death. Were they Greek or Italian? Uh, he is uh, – Kevin Klein uh, is uh, Italian. Italian. And his wife is Yugoslavia. Okay, that's what it was. It's been a while since Very I've seen Very good, it. a Catholic country. Yes, indeed. And you know what's even better than that, even more good, is Kevin Klein's chest hair in that film. Oh, it's marvelous. oh my God, it's fantastic. Even though I am a slightly biased against him because he took Phoebe Cates from the world – who was a national treasure, never to be seen from basically again after they got married. So fuck you, Kevin. Who is also in this movie, which I forgot to mention. Yeah, well, this, there you go. Uh, I think, ooh, guys, I'm going to go uh, with something I know here, and I'm going to choose Mike, Mike Ranger, to win this round with 1990, I Love You to Death. Wow, fucker. What? <laughs> You're gonna cuss out the Fuck judge. It. That never that never pans out well. <laughs> you've you've obviously never read any Hunter S. Thompson or seen any of the movies about. Dude, it. I'm like Motley Crue, man. I don't need to read it. I live it. Oh, All right. I don't know if you live that life, bro. Pretty damn close, I bet you. You should actually. I think you would really dig it. I think you would dig a lot of the stuff that he went through and that he did. It's insane. All right, Mike Ranger, you tie up this game. Heading into the first two-point round, you get control of the board. We have the television rounds and the hot products round left. Where are we going next, man? Well, I guess we're going to go with hot products. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. Well, uh, on April 4th, 1990, released to VHS, Beta, and Laserdisc was the 1989 comedy Second Sight, starring Bronson Pinchot and John Lorquette. Uh, psychic sleuths are on the loose when a Boston detective agency pairs a hard-boiled ex-cop with a super psychic, and it's going to take all the otherworldly powers they can muster to unravel the mystery surrounding a kidnapped cardinal. That's right, boys and girls. Balky Bartakamos, the sheep herder from the tiny island of Mipos, is now the psychic whiz in the detective biz. And you can take your copy home today for $89.95 on VHS or Beta, or the low, low price of $24.98 on Laserdisc. Second Sight, the movie that will have you scratching your senses. <laughs> you only have to pay like $2,000 for the Laserdisc player. Can I put yeah. it on layaway? That's what I want to know. <laughs> you can, but um, you actually do get a discount if you do the Dance of Joy in Kmart. Ah, nice. Yes. <laughs> Only Kmart, though. <laughs> you might hurt yourself. All right, guys. So my hot product is the granddaddy to a product that Judge Dave Schultz's Songs Gone Wrong partner, Drew Zachman, selected a few episodes back. In order to beat Ford and General Motors in the race to launch a new subcompact car, AMC gave birth to the Gremlin. On April 1st, 1970. Now, to manufacture the Gremlin, all AMC did was they took the existing Hornet, shortened the wheelbase and the length, and then gave the car its signature almost vertical hunchback hatchback feature. 
the AMC Gremlin was born nearly a year before the launch of all of the other competitors' vehicles. The new economy car would compete with the Chevrolet Vega, the Ford Pinto, the Toyota Corona, and my favorite, of course, the Volkswagen Beetle. 25,300 Gremlins were sold in its first abbreviated year on the market. Now, production on the Gremlin lasted all the way to 1978, with a total of 671,475 cars leaving the assembly line before it was replaced by the AMC Spirit. Uh, AM said the Gremlin offered the best gas mileage of any production car made in the United States. Now, according to the auto editors in, in Consumer's Guide, it actually had an unusually long list of options for a car from that era. Uh, and they say it's allowing owners to have luxury conveniences typically found in more expensive cars. I don't really think of the Gremlin and luxury together, but a nationwide survey of owners driving the 70 AMC Gremlin was conducted by popular mechanics and, uh, and it actually would conclude that the unique styling attracted many buyers, but it was the economy that topped their likes. Uh, the basic Gremlin carries the retail price of, get this, $1,879, which is $40 higher than the Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, one newspaper, newspaper article said the a that AMC isn't actually superstitious about releasing a car on April Fool's Day, although they probably should have been. So I give you the AMC Gremlin, April 1st, 1970. Damn. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the Hunt Products round? All right, so let's go April 6th, 1980. And this is probably the least exciting hot product I've ever selected, <laughs> but probably the one hot product that everyone who has ever listened to an episode of this show has used at home and at work. And I found uh, their sales rollout from April 6th of 1980. And you could pick up a pack of these bad boys for the introductory low price of $4.37. That's uh, $13.95 in 2021, which is a bit crazy because uh, if you consider this, like now you can go on Amazon and you can buy a pack of five for $7.29 and they're twice the size. So I don't understand how that all worked out, but whatever. And uh, I hate to break it to uh, or I hate to break the uh, the bad news to anybody that was a fan of the 1997 cult classic Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. But uh, Lisa Kudrow did not invent post-it notes. Nope. <laughs> that uh, that distinction right there would go to mad scientist Art Fry. And it's uh, it's always great how all these best inventions, they're actually created by someone else. And then somebody just slightly tweaks it and they make it work. And that's it. And back in the 60s, there was another scientist by the name of Dr. Spencer Silver. And he had been trying to invent a super adhesive that was super duper strong. However, during his experiments, it's almost like the nutty professor when I was looking this up. But like during his, his uh, experiments for this thing, he had the adhesive and it had very little tack to it, but it was pressure sensitive. But everybody in the late in the late sixties, rather, this is like nineteen sixty eight, sixty nine. They just thought that it was good for nothing. So until like the mid seventies, when Art Fry came up, he and uh, he had this genius idea because he was a reader. I think it was he was reading the Bible. Matter of fact, he's like, I'm going to take this uh, slow stick or tiny stick adhesive. I'm going to put it to the back of my bookmarks and put it in my Bible. 
And then after a few years, Fry began applying it to other scrap papers. And then 3M was like, this looks pretty good. We're going to jump on board. And uh, they actually, they didn't even do any market research, but to come up with the yellow, they actually only had yellow in their factory as scrap paper. So that's how they came up with the yellow. But uh, after a few years of trying to sell the product as a sticky bookmark, they test marked, they test marked these little yellow pads, like we know them with adhesive on the back and the test markets lost their minds. So on April 6, 1980, 3M began selling post-it notes around the world and the rest is history. So now, now the next time you go to your own high school reunion and someone claims that uh, they created post-it notes, you could shame them right out of the, uh, the building when you uh, drop this bomb on them. So it's, uh, I give you post-it notes, April 6, 1980. Wow. All right, let's throw it down to Judge Dave Schultz for the ruling on the Hot Products round. I like how uh, Man Crush brought up, there was another guy with the idea too, but someone else tweaked it. Made it better, marketed it, and made uh, mint millions of dollars. I don't know, back then, probably not millions, but still made made uh, $25 off the thing. Because when I was in, I think it was fifth grade, I had a science teacher who uh, claimed he invented the, the rear windshield wiper on a car. And then someone stole the idea from him, so that's why he was stuck, uh, you know, teaching us freaking idiots or whatever. Son of a bitch. <laughs> Dude, you know, it's funny, my... Uh, the very first technology teacher I had in seventh grade made the first American robot and they took it and they put it on a TV show. His name was Ron Heasel. Oh yeah. I don't know if he's still alive. Well, my, I gotta look my teacher's up. name was Mr. Kruger. So Ooh, that was a double whammy for this poor game. bastard. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, post-it notes. I never use them. I don't ever need to remember anything. What am I, what am I going to use a post-it note for? Come on. I don't read the Bible. Post-it note. It. When? Please, let's. You've used a post-it, dude. Everybody and their mother has used a post-it note. Mock, have you ever used a post-it note? All the time. Mike, have you ever used a post-it note? Uh, not by choice. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm just the the odd man out here. I don't, dude. I don't know what I'd need a post-it note for. I, I really don't. But anyway, everything. Like what? Creativity. What am I gonna do? Like write some. Be creative today and slap it on my fridge. It's like, uh, who is it? Is it Bob Odenkirk or is it uh, Larry David? One of them, when they get an idea, he just like writes it on a post-it. He'll right. be like, driving in his car and he like writes it down. He slaps it on his dashboard and he's got post-it notes all over the place. You've never done that? No. <laughs> How else are you going to keep track of all your passwords? Uh, you just yeah. write them on a post-it note, <laughs> stick it on the side of your monitor. No, I'm the guy who keeps getting all the reset emails because I forget all the damn time. Shopping lists. No, but listen, I understand the importance of the product and that many people use it. And I also like the fact that you gave me the inflation rate on that. Yet again, you always come <laughs> with the stats. So good for you, man. Uh, pack of post-it notes for you as a prize. Uh, 1970, the AMC Gremlin. Now, Mark, you said you weren't really sure of the luxury perks for that car? Yeah, it said they had a lot of luxury perks. It didn't list what they were, but they said it was a major selling feature. It was driving or not driving? No, I believe yeah. it was the uh, the extra ashtray underneath the hatch- hatchback for the kids. That's what, yes. <laughs> that's what but it breaks. I, I love the Gremlin. Someone in my family had a Gremlin. It's like up there as far as like defunct cars with a Dodge Omni for me. As being like the coolest crappy old car. But I mean, everybody knew. Plus a name. The Gremlin. I mean, who would ever name their car something like that? You know, what I mean? Everything has to sound sleek or fast or make no sense whatsoever. But the Gremlin, man. I was like, I don't know. 
if you're a Hobbit fan or something, you need to own a Gremlin. <laughs> Now, 1990, Mike was Second Sight, the VHS, and Laserdisc. I want to know. And, and Betamax. And Betamax, but what John Larroquette fan rushed out to spend $89.95 on that bad boy? I don't know. Somebody that loved Meatballs Part 2? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know that was only really the price for like video stores and what have you, but I definitely probably would have went Laserdisc myself with that, being on a budget, you know? But let's see. All very interesting, good products, all things that I might even purchase myself, except for post-it notes. So I'm going to choose uh, the Gremlin in 1970 for the victory on this round. Rev it up, Mark. Well, I pick up two points. I jump out to a three-to-one lead, heading into the final two-point round, the television round. So uh, my television pick is actually going to be the 42nd annual Academy Awards presented April 7th, 1970, starting at 7 p.m., 10 p.m. on the East Coast, live from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California. Now, for the second year in a row, there was no official host for the Oscars. Now, this should have told the producers something because to date, this is the highest rating Oscars ceremony ever. Instead of a host, the Oscars were awarded in presented by the Friends of Oscar, including Bob Hope, John Wayne, Barbara Streisand, Fred Astaire, John Voigt, Clint Eastwood, Raquel Welch, Candace Bergen, James Earl Jones, and the lovely Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, this was the first Oscars to be broadcast via satellite to an international audience. The two countries that were lucky enough to receive it were Mexico and Brazil. They received it live. An article in the uh, Poughkeepsie Journal from April 7th, 1970, said that the Academy estimates that at least 200 million people in 40 countries will see the ceremony live or on delayed broadcast. Now on to the big winners from the night. Uh, but first, let's start with the big loser. That was uh, the Jane Fonda, Bruce Dern, Sidney Pollock joint. They shoot horses, don't they? That's actually the name of the movie. Uh, it won one award for Best Supporting Actor, but it set an Oscar record for receiving nine nominations without one for Best Picture. That honor went to Midnight Cowboy as it became the first and only X-rated movie ever to win an Oscar for Best Picture. Uh, John Wayne would go on to win Best Actor for True Grit, and Best Actress was Dame Maggie Smith from The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Uh, Goldie Hawn would take home an award as well that night for Cactus Flower, so I give you the 42nd Academy Awards, April 7th, 1970 on ABC. All right, Man Crush, let's hear what you have for the television round. Oh, it's a post-it note infomercial. All right, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm your lead demographic. All right, so let's go uh, April 5th of 1980. And first off, like my streak of mid-season replacements has officially come to an end. The last few episodes, I was lucky enough to have uh, mid-season replacements basically all through March, but that's not the case in April. Uh, surprisingly, though, I did find the end of a particular series, which kind of shocked me in a way because this is April 5th, which seems like way early to end a series. Usually they end in May, especially like a series finale. But in any event, this is a pretty big one. Uh, this series right here it began in September of 1968. So we're talking about longevity for this show. 
And at the time of its ending, it was actually the longest running crime series on television. Of course, that's been dwarfed by uh, a few current shows in the Law and Order lexicon, but that's still nothing to ignore. I mean, 12 seasons for any show is super long. It's a super long time. Uh, this was, uh, and it was a pretty monumental show in terms of production because prior to the show in 1968, pretty much every series that was on television was done in a back production lot, whether that be like Paramount or whatever, they weren't filming these things on location. So when this show became an idea, they had little confidence that this thing was going to last. Matter of fact, after six seasons, the, uh, the creator of the show is Leonard Freeman. He died. And uh, luckily, when he passed away, the ownership of the show was given to CBS and the main character of the show, which is something that would never happen today. So it just shows how dated this is. But not only that, but he also put in his will to give total creative control over to that same actor. So, uh, I mean, along with uh, I think he also made him the executive producer of the show. So if it wasn't for that, the show probably wouldn't even lasted past 1974, but they gave him that. Uh, but Dave, I know you'll love this. This one does have legs here multiple times. It's got two legs. Not only did they plan for a remake in the mid nineties with Gary Busey starring in this one of all people, uh, they had made the, uh, the pilot for that, but CBS didn't pick it up, which is a real shame. And it's a shame because they never did it. Like they started the show in 2010. They brought it back in 2010. Like they could have done this in the nineties and just stretched it, but they didn't. So they, they brought this back in 2010. They finally made this remake and it would end up lasting for 10 seasons and only uh, ended last year. And uh, I, and I don't think it was in April. I think it was in May. Matter of fact. So it was a normal ending, uh, but what could have been? And anyway, I give you the final episode of the hit TV series, Hawaii five Oh, even if you didn't watch the show, you know the theme yeah. song. You people walk around, oh, book them, Dano. Fuck it. You know, like just everybody knows that kind of shit. And uh, a little caveat on this one, and I discovered this while I was watching a documentary on this last night. This is what we do for you. This is what we do for the listeners. <laughs> I watched a documentary on the original Hawaii Five O. It was actually supposed to air. I think it did air. Um, on CBS, but it, it was supposed to uh, be before the reboot aired and they didn't air the reboot. But I watched this whole thing. I found the clips of it on YouTube. This is what I learned from that. Uh, Hawaii 5-0 didn't just mean uh, for, you know, police officers or law enforcement. The 5-0 also meant 50th state. I never knew that. Ah, yeah. I was like, ah, double and shot. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. That was a good one. But yeah, it's the uh, it's the end of Hawaii Five O, or how they kept saying Hawaii in the uh, the documentary <laughs> I watched, which I can't say very well. All right, Hawaii. Mike TV, over to you for the TV round. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, you know, I don't uh, I don't know how to say that. Well, you know what? I've got WrestleMania six. Ooh. So. Uh, I got a couple articles here. Uh, this one's from the uh, Central New Jersey Home News in New Brunswick, New Jersey, on April first, nineteen ninety. It reads: uh, "Pro wrestling joins mainstream. Uh, bouts don't pull punches, phony or otherwise, at the bank. Uh, th this afternoon, over sixty-six thousand people will pack the Sky Dome in Toronto for WrestleMania six. 
the Super Bowl of professional wrestling, in a million homes across the United States, and more fans will gather to watch her on pay-per-view television. Countless others will view the event on closed-circuit TV sites throughout the world. Um, while many scoff at pro wrestling, it has uh, become very big business. Uh, last year, the three-hour-long WrestleMania Five card generated over $40 million for the World Wrestling Federation through live gate, merchandising, closed-circuit, and video sales. Uh, this approach has certainly helped the WWF build a following that is hard to ignore. Over 20 million people watch WWF television programs every week, and over 8 million people each year pay to watch live matches at their local arenas, according to WWF estimates. Um, got, a, got a quote here from uh, Bill Apter, senior editor of Professional Wrestling Illustrated. He says, uh, years ago, you would have never seen 66,000 people at the Sky Dome for WrestleMania. Uh, certainly was a uh, amazing event, uh, record-breaking attendance, perhaps best remembered for the ultimate challenge uh, with both titles on the line for Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior face-off. have another article here from the San Francisco Examiner on uh, April 2nd, 1990. It's the Monday after the event. It reads, uh, the Ultimate Warrior rests title from Hulk before 67,000. 678. Uh, Hulkamania was put on temporary hold Sunday when World Wrestling Federation champion Hulk Hogan lost his title to Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania 6 in Toronto Skydome. Hogan, who was believed to need time off to make a movie, missed his trademark leg drop, setting up the pin at the 30-minute mark by Hogan's war paint smeared opponent. Uh, Hogan last lost his title in 1988, reclaiming it last last year's WrestleMania to coincide with the release of his film No Holds Barred. Uh, the three-and-a-half-hour event drew a record 67,678 people, with millions of others watching on pay-per-view and closed circuit. Uh, the Toronto event was a sellout, with an average ticket price of $50 and a ringside seat costing $150. So, yeah, there we have it, uh, WrestleMania six. Wow. Yeah. Great WrestleMania, man. One of my favorites growing up. Used to watch that one all the time. But let's see what our judge Dave Schultz has to say. What is your ruling for the television round? Well, Mac, I got to be uh, full disclosure here. When you were going on about the 1970 Oscars, you were uh, actors just flying out of your mouth and the movies and everything else. But maybe it's because we were talking about Hunter S. Thompson or just the LSD potato chips. But I got I to point this out for your listeners on the podcast format. They're really missing out on your background. Because I thought I was having a flashback <laughs> while you spoke. I was just staring at you, and you're bad. I was getting lost in all that artwork you have behind your uh, head there. Yeah. But that also takes you out of the running for this category, because oh, I, I really on, didn't man. know what the hell you were talking about. The Oscars, <laughs> there was no host. I mean, I heard it a little bit, you know, but, but still. But props for that beautiful background you have there. Uh, let's see here. So that brings us to 1980, the finale of Hawaii. 5 and 1990, WrestleMania 6. And this one's actually going to... Man Crush is going to be so fucking pissed off at me. Holy shit. Because... Coco Beware wasn't even I know, it, bro. I know. And here's the thing. If anybody's ever heard me on your show before, the, anytime I ever talk to Man Crush, he always comes with wrestling. And I'm like, I don't give a fucking flying whatever about that stuff. Don't bring that to my courtroom, okay? Just don't. Yet, <laughs> Mike brings it today... And I'm like, ooh, Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan. That's actually not not that bad. Because I remember <laughs> being a young kid in 1990, and that kind of crap really got me all jazzed up. You know, I was still into, like, uh, sweaty guys making up fake storylines and uh, doing a fake sport. You know what I mean? But I, but you know what? Yet again, to Man Crush's credit, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't know about the Montreal screw job. 
So <laughs> now he tells everybody. Yeah, and you haven't oh, you lived know. until you've watched an Ultimate Warrior promo on acid, man. Yeah, that too, right. <laughs> well, actually, bringing up Hawaii 5.0, that whole thing about being in the 50th state, I think the person who came up with that may have, in fact, been on drugs. I'm not sure 100% that was the intent. I still think it was about the fuzz, man. Well, that that's what... Uh... I forgot what her name was. She was in the documentary. She was one of the uh, executive producers in the very beginning when they were talking about bringing up the name. And she dropped that like it was the ultimate bomb. Mm. And I was like, whoa, you serious? <laughs> I never even knew that. So she did mean to say that. Uh, but yeah, so back to my decision on this. Yet again, Hawaii Five O. like you said, you, you said it's got two legs, which is very important. That means it can run. Uh, it's, it's been around for a long time in a couple different incarnations here. We really... Humanity missed out without a Gary Busey version. Oh my God. He, I don't know who he was. I didn't see the pilot because it didn't air, so I couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. But I wonder who he was supposed to be. If he was like the main guy, like Jack Lord's character, it would have been dynamite, man. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't you put that out? Like, I, I just don't understand. I think they should remake it now with Gary Busey. <laughs> <laughs> he could be the governor of Hawaii. Oh, it'd be Hawaii. fantastic. Hawaii. But uh, guys, listen, in all seriousness here, I'm thinking when Mike came with those stats about WrestleMania, it's a huge thing, whether you like wrestling or not, right? It's really big. And as far as I'm trying to weigh it out, and I'm sure your fans on Facebook might skewer me for this. Who knows? They're probably huge wrestling fans and are happy that I'm turning heel. I don't know. (laughs) But in all honesty here, I think WrestleMania 6 was probably bigger and better than the finale of Hawaii Five O, And therefore... I'm going to uh, shake. Wait a minute. What? I call bullshit. What? Come on. I call straight bullshit. <laughs> you did not pick the Montreal Screwjob yeah. over two pieces of shit last Dude. year. And now you're going to pick <laughs> WrestleMania 6 that you can't remember a single match from except for the last one. And, dude, yeah. it's WWF. Mm-hmm. Not WWE at the time. This is WWF. Mm. That's 66,000. It was probably 26,000. <laughs> Mark can back me up here. There was not 190,000 people at the Silverdome or whatever the frig they said it was. Toronto. That's No, I'm talking about uh, WrestleMania 3. They do this oh. all the time. Their, their numbers are shit. So the fact that you switch your stuff, man, you can't dismiss the Montreal Screwjob and then pick WrestleMania. If this is WrestleMania 3 or like something during the Attitude Era, okay. WrestleMania whoa, whoa, whoa. six, it's like kissing your sister, bro. Man crush, don't get your, your tights in, in a wad here. Listen, listen, guy. Like, okay, you're saying I totally crapped on the Montreal uh, screw job. No, I did not. And I also mentioned to you just now it's had a lasting impact on my life now. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night in sweats and I go, Montreal screw job. And I think about you. And you inform me. You taught me. So you know what? There, if anybody's to blame, I can't remember. I can't remember what the other one was, mm. but there was more than one because I always try to bring wrestling for you to try to sway you, and every time you wouldn't pick it. Well, maybe this so time you should you have need, brought some you wrestling. Need to work on, you, you need to work on your law, bro. Instead of Hawaii Five O, <laughs> guy. You know what? Like I just told you before, you don't argue when you get a speeding ticket, and you're in the courtroom. Oh, I just, do. Oh yeah, I do. you're out of order. <laughs> You were out of order, but seriously. We're talking about 22 seasons. Yeah. Two shows put together. We got three legs with Gary Busey, and that shit's big, that third leg. That's a phantom limb. That's what that is. (laughs) And I knew you'd be upset. I knew you'd be mad. And you know what? The audience is going to get up. It's set up. What does the audience say? Is there anybody in the crowd right now that's stuck around? Uh, Yeah, we had some results uh, back, and actually it was 100% for WrestleMania 6. Oh, come on. This is amazing. 
It's awful. That is an awful choice. This is equally the best and worst night of my life. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what that means. That ties up me and Mike at three points apiece. We're going to have to go to a final wild card round. So I'll go first on this one. It's going to be between me and Mike. Uh, my wild card round, we're going to go to April 1st, 1970, to talk about some brand new legislation enacted by President Nixon. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not. President Nixon, an avid smoker, used to smoke up to six bowls a day of tobacco pipe. But he did enact the Public Health Cigarette Smoking Act, April 1st, 1970. Now, what is that? That was the law that said, warning, Surgeon General has determined that cigarette smoking is dangerous to your health. That was the new label that had to be on all packages of cigarettes. This is the same law that actually also banned advertisements on American radio and television of cigarettes. That's why all the cigarette ads went away. Now, we're going to skip ahead a few years. 1981, they actually did a study on this, and they showed that it had little to no effect on American smoking habits. But that's what we got, April 1st, 1970. Thanks a lot, President Nixon. Tricky day comes up again. All right, Mike Ranger, what do you have for the wild card round? Well, Mark, I uh, have a news article here. Um... Now, uh, around April 4th, 1990, uh, America's Funniest Home Videos had, as a mid-season replacement, had actually reached number one in its time slot in March. And uh, America's Funniest Home Videos mania had, had ensued. Probably sold quite a bit of uh, home video recording equipment after that. Uh, but uh, I have an article here that said from the Rock Island, can't pronounce that word, but it was written on April 4th, so that's good. Um, so the article reads, don't bother to send in fake videos. Uh, this article comes from Phoenix here. Uh, if you got a plan for a video you believe would make America's home, funniest home videos, just forget it. If the tape appears to be contrived, executive producer won't even accept it. It's a procedure that show host Bob Saget applause. Uh, most of the tapes we, uh, we use are happen happenstance. Uh, things that just seem to happen while people are shooting home videos. And um, also goes on to say that uh, while ABC's half an hour program, which airs Sunday, uh, solicits home videos, they do not want anything that, that would uh, not be an, a natural occurrence. And uh, what's funny about this is I'm sure everybody that watched that show said to themselves, I will just make something funny happen and send it in. Right. So what I like about this article is that it really captures the feeling of the times. <laughs> uh, did you ever send any uh, stuff in from America to America's Funniest Home Videos, Mike? Uh, yes, and that's uh, why I recently was just released uh, from prison. Oh, wow, well, there we go. Yeah, there was something at the end of the tape. Shouldn't have been there. Uh, <laughs> if I had a nickel. All right, well, let's go down to our guest judge, Dave Schultz, one final time for his verdict on this game. Guys, this one is super easy for me. I'm picking WrestleMania 6 for the win. Uh, <laughs> no, but seriously here. Uh, uh, Scumbag. Uh, what? what? <laughs> Listen, guys, uh, both these years, the whole thing about Nixon banning smoking advertising and then AFV saying don't pre-stage your... Your videos is both wildly ineffective because I mean, I used to, when I was a kid, I used to smoke butts. I used to freaking see the Marlboro man and ads and stuff. I used to collect camel cash. So what the hell did that law actually do? It didn't do anything. And they had studies that proved it didn't do anything. Well, I mean, I could still see ads. So what was it actually banning? 
uh, television ads. Television ads. You're not going to be watching, uh, you know, Friends or something and see an ad for Marlboro. No, but I could pick up a copy of Highlights Magazine and see an ad for a pack of Cools. You could. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. And Highlights, for those who don't know, is a children's magazine. And that was supposed to be my joke and illicit <laughs> laughter, but it did nothing. So, uh, but hey, AFV, 1990, if you think about this, deterring people from staging their fart videos or flops or falls uh, probably inspired the careers of guys who got wildly successful like Tom Green or Jackass, because all that stuff was, uh, that was big, 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 yeah. big. And AFV now, I believe, is just like a, a channel that just plays odd, goofy cell phone videos, which are terrible. So where did AFV go? But straight down. Guys, let's see. Nixon banning smoking, but people still get to see some ads, smoking ads, and AFV. This is like timely, right? Spring training has going, it just ended. The Major League Baseball <laughs> season just started the first week. People are starting a little slow, crawling. See these? I don't know. I don't know what's working for me. Can I seriously pick WrestleMania six again? Can I? <laughs> no. No. Uh, see, I'm waiting. For, I, I knew Man Crush would pop right up with that. See, like a groundhog. No. no. Uh, I guess just for. Well, I guess they both affect public health, right? I was gonna pick Nixon because I'm like, well, maybe you're saving lives by not letting people or not showing people smoking. But AFV was probably, uh, you know, saving lives because Uncle. Whenever Jimmy wasn't taking shots of whiskey and jumping off the garage roof anymore. <laughs> Saved a whole lot of people from getting hit in the nuts. Oh, that's true. You might have no, no, made a case and answer They just yourself. weren't watching the tapes. They were still doing it. They just weren't watching <laughs> well, the tapes. Yeah. So right. they were doing it. You're getting hit in the nuts for nothing. For nothing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty much. Let's see. I think I'm going to have to go with, I, I don't know. Guys, again, I'm going to go with 1970 on this. I'm going to say Nixon banning certain forms of uh, smoking advertising was a little bit of a bigger deal than AFV sending out a disclaimer wow. via the press. All right. Now, let me throw this at you because I, I think Dave just hates me today. What? <laughs> so, like, let's just say this went to a three-way tie. Yeah. We got people in the audience now, so let's just say that. It, okay, sure. Even though it, Hypothetical. It all right, so let's go to April 6th of 1980. You got Gordie Howe playing in his last regular season game as a professional hockey player. But hold on. Mm. He was 56 years old, yeah. and this is his 26th season. And the dude, and that's not even the six seasons that he played in the WHA. So where would you go? I, I, would, I would have picked you for the win because, <laughs> I, to be honest, you know, no offense, Mark or Mike, but those weren't like the the big the biggest like, hey, wild card round, I'm pulling a, the, the fatty out of my back pocket. But we're talking about a 52-year-old hockey player here. 56. 56, sorry, even better. There you go. He's already got a double ARP card or something, you know, and he's- That's going to be your boy, Tom Brady, in uh, another- He's not my what, boy like 12 anymore. years. He's an ex-girlfriend. He left bro. us. But, but, he, but you know what? It's great that, that Man Crush was so pissed off about this whole wrestling thing that he couldn't even just, like, take uh, a defeat, you know, gracefully. He's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Before before we're done with the show, let me throw you my pick. Like, look, uh, no, I'm just, I'm just going to say it like this. It's like going to court, mm -hmm. right? And you've been there multiple times. Mm -hmm. You know the judge, and you're like, oh, this guy, I know what he, he likes and what he doesn't like. You know, I'm I'm talking on my phone. He's going to hammer me, you know, for this ticket. And then uh, it comes to you and I'm like, all right, he don't like wrestling. He kills me every time I have wrestling. So we'll pick wrestling. So the time I don't pick wrestling, you pick wrestling. <laughs> Hold on. 
Was there a wrestling event in the first week of April? I didn't of even 1980. Look. Oh, see that? Look at that. I didn't even look because it was you. I was like, oh, ah. it's Dave. If I bring any wrestling, he's going to be like, well, is Coco Beware in it? No. Okay, you lost. I like Coco Beware. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Big fan of the Coco. So, you better beware. It's uh, just, it doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> there's no continuity. How, there's no listen, continuity. guy, how can I make this up to you? How can I make you feel better about this? Because I know this is going to I'm fine. I just like arguing with you because when we have the guest judges on that you can't are yell at them. I can't, I can't yell at them. <laughs> Glad to be of service. But uh, anyway, back to the show at hand here. I picked 1970 to win the wild card round. All right. So that means I win this game. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, thanks a lot to our great judge tonight, Mr. Judge Dave Schultz, who, you know, did draw that really nice character of me. Maybe that was foreshadowing. Maybe he uh, he had already picked this out. The fix is in. But I want to yeah. thank, again, I want to thank our judge, Dave Schultz. I want to thank our producer, Joe Finley, on the other side of the glass over there. Oh, hey. <laughs> uh, having a lot of fun glad to be here joe what what is going on in uh in twitch land is there uh, oh is yeah there we got some bodies no. we got some old friends bo b craft was just in and oh, wow, uh fantastic. A, lot, a lot of followers uh in there flynn lives 79 stacy 78x uh pokai four tds one game i'm ha i got a feeling that may or may not be somebody in this uh particular game but i'm not going to get too into that and uh yeah no it's it's good we're working out some bugs there's some chat going over my face right now uh so right right on top of my face whatever you'd like to have it is anybody uh please i hope someone's saying man crush leave dave alone uh <laughs> you know stop abusing him on air no. any of that kind no. of chatter going on there Absolutely. was a man crush was robbed oh wow <laughs> hawaii five oh why? Why? <laughs> well, let us know what you think, duelers. We're going to have to end this episode right here, unfortunately. But you can go over to our social media. Uh, all of the links are in the description of the show notes. Head on over to our website, duelingdecades.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. Make sure to subscribe to us on Twitch now, as we'll be bringing you more live content. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everybody. Thanks for coming. Podcast New York. Podcast New York. Be heard. Be heard.